hear you. Make them hear you. Make them hear you. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. If we ever needed to vote for democracy and justice, we sure do need to vote now. The fight to preserve voting access for economically marginalized and other disenfranchised Americans has kept religious social justice groups very busy these past couple years, up to and including repeated arrests for faith leaders like Poor People's Campaign co-chair Bishop William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. As Election Day draws near, Liz will be back with us to talk about the campaign's massive national get-out-the-vote effort. I'm Doug Padgett, and I want to invite you to join us on the Vote Common Good Tour this fall as we barnstorm the country to invoke a new ethic, the common good. And we want you to know that you're not alone. The organization Vote Common Good is crisscrossing the country with a big orange bus rallying faith voters to stand against Christian nationalism and vote for the common good. Doug Paget, executive director of Vote Common Good, will be with us to share how it's going. The state of Florida uh, has charged and is in the process of arresting 20 individuals across the state for voter fraud. At the time that they registered the vote, they were led to believe that everything was okay. How dare the state respond by arresting them? How dare the state respond by scaring people from wanting to be a part of this democracy? Many of us watched in disgust as men and women were filmed while being arrested in Florida. Their crime was believing the officials when they were told they could vote. Cruel stunts like what happened in Florida are just one example of attempts to undermine public confidence in the upcoming midterm elections in the Sunshine State. Pushing back is the League of Women Voters, and I'll talk with the president of the Florida chapter of the League, Cecile Schoon. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Each week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it, so please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can be helpful in keeping this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. To be a true democracy requires that all people not only be allowed but encouraged to participate in voting. Over the centuries, our country has slowly been including more people in our democratic process. However, today we are seeing backsliding on that commitment as systematic voter intimidation and suppression targeting black voters as well as poor voters has become a tactic of those on the right. Relentlessly sounding a national call for moral revival, the Poor People's Campaign is uncompromising in living into the slogan, Our Votes, Our Demands. It's great to have campaign co-chair Reverend Liz Theo Harris back with us on this week's show. Rev. Liz, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. All right. So tell me an update. What is the Poor People's Campaign focused on right now? So for the past couple of months, we have been reaching out to 
uh, more than 5 million poor and low income, low propensity voters. That means voters that are less likely to participate in elections, you know, sometimes because of voter suppression, transportation issues, you know, childcare issues, but also because for too long, our politics have not focused on the priorities, the needs, the demands of poor and low income people. And, and yet actually poor and low income people make up one third of the electorate. And in some battleground places, um, 40 to 45 percent. And yet we have not been hearing these issues. So so we're in a campaign to reach out to poor and low income voters to have those poor and low income people make our politicians hear us. Right. Um, and to and to that's indeed. so important. It, you know, right. it, it's 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 not just about like, well, go to the polls and vote for the people who aren't going to listen to you. It's actually as you say, vote, voting is demand. I think that's so good because it actually says, with our vote, we are going to demand that you listen to us. What are some of the issues that you feel are voter issues, especially of poor uh, and black and brown people? What, what are some of the issues that feel really present this midterm? Well, I think the fact that we, for 13 years, have not seen a minimum wage increase, right? The uh. The federal minimum wage is still seven twenty-five an hour. Um, there's not a town or a county or a small city anywhere, um, let alone a big city, anywhere in this country where if you're working full time at that wage, you can afford to even rent a two bedroom apartment, right? So we have to have an increase to the, the federal minimum wage and make it a living wage and start at least at $15 an hour and then go up from there. We, we have to have uh, expanded universal healthcare. Um, how is it that we just went through and are still actually feeling the effects of and going through the worst public health um, uh, crisis in, in generations, in a hundred years, right? Uh, a million, more than a million people dead. Um, a third of those folks, uh, pol- you know, uh, public health officials are saying if they had had healthcare, they wouldn't have died from COVID, right? Um, and yet we haven't seen a significant expansion of healthcare. Um, and we yeah. have, uh, you know, it's, and so, so that's another issue. It's, it's on the ballot. It's, it's, it's there. People care about it. We need to see something done around it. Yeah, I mean, it, really, these issues that you're talking about, those two, those two right there, could change lives. They could change lives. They could change communities. If everyone had a living wage, they could also spend more. They could. I mean, if you're if you're trying to actually have a society that functions, people should be healthy. They should have a place to live. They should have money for food and to a way to educate their children and and actually be able to enjoy life. And what and what you are talking about, I just. I am so appreciative that you keep focus on this because, you know, it's I my sense is, is that many politicians would rather talk about anything. I mean, we've seen specifically what they want to talk about is trans children. For, it, they'd much rather talk about that than talking about actually having people be able to live their lives well. And so, like, you know, I, I think that this is so helpful. Do you find that that is um something that resonates particularly with people of faith and with the moral framework that you work under? So we surely hear, and community to community that we go, um, whether it's the child tax credit or decent housing or healthcare or living wages, whether it's, you know, um, all of these kind of life and livelihood issues um, that that impact really the vast majority of people, uh, folks, you know, just celebrate it, just amen it. 
just say that, yes, these are the issues of our day. They're the moral issues of our day, right? I mean, I mean, here you have, uh, I'm a Christian, uh, you're a Christian. You have uh, Jesus Christ, you know, traveling across the land, setting up free healthcare clinics, never asking a leper for a copay. And yet we have right now, you know, folks that are, are literally burying their children because they do not have healthcare. And oh my God. Many of the folks that are denying the expansion of healthcare are are self-proclaimed Christians who are, are saying that if God wanted to save those people, uh, they, they that He would have right. That is that is heretical, is what it that is, is heretical. Yeah. You know, just you saying that, I I'll, I'll mention when this you know the Walter Rauschenbusch reference here. You know, when he okay. went to. To, when he went to pastor a church in Hell's Kitchen, and that was the right name for it at the time, he kept on burying children. Yeah. And he said, the tiny boxes, they broke my heart. And I had to ask, why did these children die? And he looked and he saw, oh, it's this is this is the system is stacked against them. They are working for not enough money. People don't have enough money for health care. They don't have enough money for healthy living situations. And what what who am I as a Christian? Who am I? What am I going to do? And am I just going to help the person that, that you know along the road who's been attacked again and again, or am I going to go back and figure out why are people getting attacked? And I really feel like no one does more honor to the legacy of Walter Rauschenbusch, and I know gone be, well beyond it than you and Bishop Barber and so many hundreds, thousands of people across the country working. Walter Rauschenbusch's you know example is is amazing, right? I mean, and right. and for someone who saw that the way to honor and worship God, like Deuteronomy tells us, like Leviticus tells us, like Matthew tells us, is to advocate for justice. Is yeah. to it's just to, it's it's loving your neighbor in real ways. Exactly. Exactly. And and when Jesus preaches about good news to the poor, now right. what what is that good news if it isn't right. The ending of evictions it isn't the canceling of debt it isn't you know the the very economic and social and political supports that that people need and that we can do i mean it costs our do country it. more to have the kind of poverty that we have than it would be to end it and yet here we are tell me a little bit about what your um what the poor people campaign is doing right now in this last I know your your work continues. Elections are part of it. It is not the sum total. But what in this last week with um, Get Out the Vote, what are you all doing for that effort? And I also want to invite, if, if there's ways that people can, can support you, I'd love to hear those too. Yeah. So, I mean, we have already reached out to 5 million poor and low-income voters. That's we're, We've touched one in 50 eligible voters in this country. Um, we focused on 15 states this week. We're focusing particularly on Georgia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida. And if people have time to text and phone bank um, poor and low-income, low-propensity voters in those states with the Poor People's Campaign, you can go to our website, vote.poorpeoplescampaign.org, and you can sign up for a text bank. We're, we're doing at least six a day, every day a week. Um, and there's lots of opportunity to be reaching out, you know, to, to many voters that never have people come reach out to them. Right. Um, so that's happening. Just I want to just like stop there for a second. How much it means, you know, we think of texting as bothering people, but actually someone saying, actually, I care about your vote. I right. think it's really important that you participate because I want I want America to look good for you. 
That's right. as it does for me. This is and and so I just want to every listener, you do not need to scroll through Instagram for those three hours. Sign up with the Poor People's Campaign. Vote dot poorpeoplescampaign.org. Did I get that That's right? right. Vote okay, go there, sign up, That's be right. a part of it. And then please push it out, you know, send it to five or 10 or 15 of your congregants, your friends, your family members, and say, you know, these are the issues that have to be front and center um, in this election, because they matter. Um, and then at the same time, as you do that, you know, make sure that you're getting involved if you can, by either going and being a poll protector, you know, encouraging folks in your community, because uh, that that happens across the country. You know, obviously we, we're seeing a, 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 an election this year um, that has even more voter suppression and voter intimidation. And, and we've been through, you know, multiple cycles now without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. And so, so we also have, need to make the connection between both turning people out and actually fighting for the heart and soul of this democracy. Because um, right. it's really at stake and it really matters. And, and, and and we have to assert that that you know that we're 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 going to fight for this for this nation to be what it says it could be. Um, Absolutely, you know, to achieve our country, as uh, Baldwin wrote. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, that's absolutely true. And we're going to we're, we're talking to the League of Women Voters um, a little bit later in this hour, what they've done to actually sue those people who are um, showing up with rifles at ballot boxes for intimidation, which is exactly what it is. And I think what you're saying, it's not enough for us to say, well, why don't people just go vote? Listen, there's all kinds of reasons why people aren't going vote. Physical safety is one of them. Ability to go to a voting, a polling station that is now five miles away when it used to be in your neighborhood. I mean, there, you know, so let's get real about like why, how we can help and what, what, what is needed. Show, show up as a poll chaplain. I know you know Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner with the poll chaplains. There's other ways to show up to be at the polls, to help people get to the polls with driving, all kinds of things. I, I think it's just so important. And those states feel really important. Why those states in particular? Is the Poor People Campaign really active in those states or are those just feel like the swing states that matter right now? So we we surely are active. We're, we're active in about 40 states and we selected 15 in this kind of pre midterm cycle after we held, you know, one of the largest gatherings of poor and low income people um, in in Washington, D.C. back in June. Um, we then have been kind of marching toward the polls and 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 folks showed up in D.C. from every state in the union. Um, but we identified 15 states that um, have a a large, more than a third of their um, their electorate is made up of poor and low income people. But then also that the margin of, of victory um, in those states from the last election, from the last couple of elections, um, if just a small percentage of poor and low income people uh, more than had turned out in the last election turned out in this election, they could change um, the outcome of the election. Um, wow. That is uh, so know. smart, so strategic. And also recognizing that h- how crazy is it? A third of the el- electorate is yeah, not being third. represented with yeah. economic policies, healthcare policies, you know, th- and, and, and what a difference it would make with those of us who actually do have the privilege of a power in many ways. Not everybody has a lot of power, but, all, you know, 
to say we're going to stand with people or we're going to show up with people and uh and and i just think that th that is just amazing what you're doing a state like florida i i think it's I, I might have the number wrong but it's really small it, it's it's something like if four percent more poor and low-income voters were to were to vote um in this election mm. uh they could change the outcome of the last election you know like right. you know and again i mean they could change the outcome of the last election but they would have exceeded the margin of victory right i mean and and in, in North Carolina, it's it's 19%. Um, but that means only actually thousands of voters, right? Like right. in some places, right. it's hundreds of voters. I mean, yeah. that's how close. So when people say, you know, does my vote really matter? The answer is a, a decidedly yes. And especially if if you're poor and low-income folks who, who have not heard the issues that are of concern to you, have not seen the kind of policies being passed that that benefit you and your community, then then you have the power and it's in your hands to go and, and make a huge impact, right? Um, and, and, and I think that the, what you're saying is votes are demands. Do I have that right? That's right. That's votes right. Votes are demands. I think that that actually has a resonance there because it's not just, oh, yeah, I'll vote and then you guys do whatever you want. It's like, no, I voted. And, and by the way, I'm going to hold you accountable. That's right. For, That's right. for my needs. And, I, and, and my community showed up. So you're going to represent us. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, so Mary Kay Henry, the president of SEIU, you know, said that um, from the stage of this mass poor people and low wage workers assembly and moral march on Washington that we held this past summer. And, and she said, you know, our votes are not support. That's that's not what they mean. They mean that we're demanding that you actually pay attention to the issues that that matter to people. Um, right. We, we're putting you in there. We can take you out of there. Right. That's right. Um, it's a representative democracy. Representative. Right. Represent. Represent. Yeah. Represent. represent. And, I, and the I, issues I, that we care about are are you know healthcare and living wages and voter you know right, voting rights and immigrant rights and and the rights yeah. of LGBTQ folks and 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 the intersection and interplay of well, all of that. I, I think one of the most amazing things about the Poor People's Campaign, and I, I have said this to um, uh, Bishop Barber and to others in the in the Poor People, uh, no one gets thrown under the bus. No, it's very tempting can't. to say, okay, we're not going to we're not going to talk about um, uh, LGBTQ issues because that's divisive in some communities, and we really like we're we're just going. It's like no, we're not going to do it that way. We're not going to play that game. We're not going to feed into that idea that there aren't queer poor people because of course there are I mean 40 40% of 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 homeless youth are queer yeah 40%, and so so right? this 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 kind of um you know but but that's very tempting and i understand it and as a gay man i'm always like when i see that i'm like okay i un I, I make excuses for it because I'm like i i i don't want to i don't want my thing to get in the way of progress for poor people but Barbara has been, and you, I, I, it's just amazing. So I just want to, one, publicly acknowledge it, show my gratitude, and also show, like, that's what I dream of. I actually dream of a world, um, and that's a, the religious dream for me, where mm -hmm. no one is actually left behind, no one is thrown under the bus, and everybody is included. And this is the reason, the other piece of this is that, um, I, you know, again and again, this is not, th there, are, there are white pe poor people. This is not, this is, a, this is, there are, and, and, and by the way, like, this is a call for everyone to come together. These are messages that I've heard that I just, I lift up. No, I appreciate that. I mean, like in this voter outreach that we're doing, this mobilization and organizing, 
um, you know, we're we're reaching out to a section of the 140 million people in this, the richest country in human history, who are poor or one small emergency away from from you know absolute economic ruin. Uh, the largest number, I mean, not percentage wise, but we we have to acknowledge the the history, right. the, sure. the, the reality of of systemic racism and and the disproportionate impact of poverty on Black and Latino and Native and Asian communities. Um, but in raw numbers, um, in any of the states that that we're focusing on and any of the states that we look at, there are more poor white people then there are poor people of other races, right? And, and what right. we're talking about is how do we connect to, you know, and, and build this fusion coalition, this fusion movement, you know, hearkening back to other moments in US history when poor white people and poor Latino and black and, and, and Asian and native have come together um, to right. really, you know, be what Dr. King called a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life, right? <laughs> new and unsettling force. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Uh, so last words, I would love two things. I want one really like specific example of a of a person or a community that comes to mind in the last several months that just like sticks out and you say, oh my God, like I'm getting up every day facing a lot, but I think about them and I say, my work. I'm glad I'm doing this work. I'm glad I'm with these these people. I'm glad I was able to help just a small way. Is there a, is there an anecdote of, that you can think of that that helps exemplify why it's so important to do this work? Yeah, I was. We were just holding a online kind of uh, rally after we had done marches to the polls um, a couple weeks ago with the Poor People's Campaign and. There were there were two folks from Alabama who joined that um, one was um, Mama Callie Greer, um, who had to bury her daughter Venus um, because of the lack of health care and and Medicaid expansion in the state of Alabama and Ashley had to bury um, her 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 son Mer Mercury to, to gun violence um, and to the kind of violence um, of our of our communities. Um, and then she was sitting with um, a, a man who is uh, living in a homeless encampment in Mobile, Alabama. She she's from Selma, um, who was talking about how you know uh, he's um, he's dying from cancer right now, and he can't you know get housing, he can't get health care, um, and politicians have been trying to tell him that you know he doesn't matter and his vote you know shouldn't 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 be cast right. Um, but there you had you know in Alabama. Uh, these two leaders um, sitting who are going through incredible hardship, but who are, you know, marching and calling and texting people and saying, you know, we, we matter. Um, uh, we, you know, we're poor and low income people and we're here and we're not going anywhere and we're going to make sure um, our, you know, our voices are heard, our stories are told and and that, you know, uh, and this message that that actually when we when we lift from the bottom, you know, when when actually, you know, everybody's in, nobody's out, that that when you kind of bring things up from the bottom, then everybody gets to rise, right? And so our politics have got to change in this country. They can change. Um, when we invest in living wages and child tax credit and health care, you know what? That helps everybody. Um, uh, it saves right. lives. But, you know, if, if tomorrow we were to put into into um, reality, uh, a $15 an hour minimum wage across the country, that would mean $368 billion being brought into the economy. 
you know yeah. how that would what yeah. that would do for I mean honestly what you're talking about is the reason we have a middle class today at all is because of policies that were enacted you know uh, about about 70 or 80 years ago that helped create a middle class otherwise it was poor and rich and and uh and what you're suggesting is like what how can we backtrack on something that is so aimed at making life better and and by the way when you hear about like one the gas companies and and uh and the um all the, the food company, all, they're, all, they're all making huge profits. Mm-hmm. And yet they're saying, oh, inflation, what are we going to do? And oh, no, like we have to raise prices. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. this is this. Tell me again about that. So I just really I, I, I and I just want to I want to lift up um, the the spirit of those two people you were talking about. And, and I want all of us to just be grateful for their lives, grateful for what they're doing for our democracy, and to and to to send just if you're if you're a praying person, fine. If you're a good vibe per- person, fine. Send it to them and to everyone else who is motivated in this time. Last word, like, what's next? Where you know the election will happen. There'll be winners and losers. It's going to be ugly. It could be like there's only degrees of less ugly. <laughs> Uh, but but we, you know, what's next? Like and and you know, what what should we be preparing our souls for and our hands and our feet for? Right. I mean, right right now we are so focused on 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 the election um, because it it matters so much. But what we we constantly say in the Poor People's Campaign at National Call for More Revival, the Cairo Center that I direct, the repairs of the breach that Dr. Barber um, um, is president of, is is we have to shift the narrative and we have to build power. And so we are, are trying to raise the real issues of our day and we're trying to build a mighty power amongst those that uh, have been locked up and left out and looked over, um, but who have the potential um, to really, you know, change absolutely everything for the, for the better for people. And so, you know, we have been calling for, you know, um, continued nonviolent direct action and non-cooperation. We've been continued to, to organize, kind of nationalize these state-based and local struggles that are happening. You know, we've been in Jackson, Mississippi, talking about that water crisis. We've, we're, we'll, we'll be in, in Florida, you know, talking about the, the unequal um, response and relief because of the hurricane, you know, we have amazing folks in Rhode Island that are organizing around utilities and housing. I mean, there's yeah, yeah. powerful kind of permanently organized communities out there. And and, and, we're just and localized efforts, like really recognizing everything is about a context. Everybody, everything is, is both intensely local and, and also with national implications. The Reverend Liz Theo Harris is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, along with Bishop William Barber. She is leading a nationwide initiative to ensure the voices of economically marginalized Americans are heard at the voting booth and everywhere else. Reverend Liz, thank you so much for taking time for State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much, Reverend Paul. It's good to be here. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, the leader of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett. And later, Florida League of Women Voters President, Cecile Schoon. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance.
It's a very American way to bring a message to communities nationwide. Roll into town with a bus. In this case, a big orange bus urging voters to vote for the common good. We are with Doug Paget, who is the executive director of Vote Common Values, and we're catching up with him on the road. So welcome to the show, Doug. Hey, Paul, what a treat to be with you all. All right. So where are you? I'm actually literally looking at you with the background going by. Beautiful foliage. Uh, Where are we? Well, we are experiencing a beautiful day moving uh, between uh, Cleveland, Ohio and Columbus, Ohio. So we're uh, somewhere on the highway between those two great cities in Ohio. It's amazing. I love it. So tell it, talk to me about the genesis of this particular project. Uh, I'll just, you know, background, you've just, you've been involved in so many creative initiatives about bringing values to America, um, rooted in your faith, but reaching out. Uh, why don't, why don't we start there sure. actually, and just talk a little bit about your background, where you come from and how you got to this place. Well, I spent my adult life as a pastor in the evangelical church tradition. There's a little sliver uh, that many people don't know about of the evangelicals, which are the progressive evangelicals. And uh, so I've been in that stream and have been a church pastor, started a church, do a lot of organizing with other leaders around the country and writing books about church life and spirituality. And so that's been the genesis of the work I've done as an adult, always seeing the role of spirituality to be not only a personal benefit, but also a public good, and that our our faith should drive us to contribute to being a benefit and blessing to all people. And that's the approach I've taken in church work and theology and uh, civic engagement. Um, so that, that ultimately led to the starting of Vote Common Good. Let me just jump in there real quick and just say, like, it's not that small of a slice. You know, like many evangelicals, and one of the great joys for me as someone who's raised in the mainline, what you know, what we call these 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 categories, whatever mainline means. Yeah. But I was made, raised in the mainline church, and and then when I when I became more involved in public, you know, conversations about faith, some of the most exciting voices that I met were people like you, Doug, and others evangelicals who were, you know, who were who were helping me in, get introduced to the the personal aspect of the gospel at just as I think the evangelical, many of evangelicals like yourself were, were clearly seeing the relationship of the personal gospel to the social, what has been called the social yeah. gospel and how these are not separate things. And I think that I, I know that that would, uh, that's very pleasing to many of us is that yeah. this is an yeah. opportunity for people to recognize that you know our our religion, our faith can be both about like very personal things as well as um, about our engagement to society. Yeah, and so statistically, you know, we're probably talking twenty, twenty five, maybe thirty percent of the evangelical tradition would find itself comfortably rooted there. Maybe another twenty or thirty percent on certain topics. So yeah, it um, there's it's a robust group, but. We acknowledge that statistically your chances of running into a person from the evangelical tradition that uh, has uh, more limited views of the benefit of the gospel for public benefit, um, you know, it's probably seven out of ten. Um, and, <laughs> but uh, still, you are loud and mighty, and we're 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 <laughs> we so don't. you know we're so glad that uh, that you are speaking up and and and. 
but how did how did this happen? Like vote common good. How did vote common good happen? After the election of Donald Trump, a lot of us in a lot of the spaces of public life and spirituality asked the question that people all over the country are asking, which is, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And in our world, we knew that you know upwards of 80% of people from the religious tradition that I called home, evangelicals, supported Donald Trump in the election in 2016. So we knew that there was 20% who didn't, who needed to be encouraged. And we also believed that there were a number of those people who deeply regretted that vote. So by 2018, we were meeting a significant portion of people who um, felt that they made a mistake and they wanted to unravel that and not do that again. And so we launched a project called Hindsight 2020 to give people a chance in 2020 to reconsider that vote that they did. And we started traveling the country being more public. You know, frankly, a lot of us had to say that, you know, our religious traditions, not only evangelicals, but, you know, mainline church people, over 50 percent, Catholics pushing 60 percent supported the election of Donald Trump. So we knew that the, the DNA of the Christian community was all over this crime scene and we couldn't just walk away from it and act like it was someone else. We needed to get out and deliver the work. So we started to work in what we call the missing space. And that is the place that involves both Christianity and spirituality and politics. And so we wanted to work more deeply in talking directly to faith voters about their um, obligation and their possibility to detach their Republican voting identity from their faith identity, which is something a lot of people have a really hard time doing. We like to joke, it's almost like, you know, they pulled into the Wendy's and ordered the number two and they just came with the fries on the side. You know, the Republican identity came with a cheeseburger that they ordered. And, and yeah. well, uh, they wanted to that, not eat the fries, but by the time they got home, they ate the fries, you know, and so. Yeah, wanna... and, and you never really feel good after eating the whole, like, <laughs> supersized fries. Um, I just think I should have swapped it out for a side salad. One of the interesting statistics from, um, you know, kind of happening more recently is that actually Christian, especially Christian national national identity is not actually accompanied by frequent church going. It's really a, almost a, it's almost like an identity that has very little to do with the religious um, aspect of, of Christianity and church attendance, but really more about a certain sort of um, brand of, of political, um, political yeah. ideology that is about exerting control. Yeah, our, our work has always been asking people to make the common good, the voting criteria, but in this election cycle, on the side of this bus that we're traveling on, it says faith, hope, and love, not insurrections and Christian nationalism. We never thought we'd have to be so explicit about making a distinguish, uh, distinguishing between, you know, religion of faith, hope, and love and Christian nationalism and an insurrection that was funded and fueled in great part by the thinking and the ideas of Christian nationalism. And Paul, you're exactly right. As we've done our study and working with experts on Christian nationalism, Realize it's not a religion, it is a political ideology. And that political ideology uses the constructs of faith in order to push its ideas. And there's a hearty percentage of Americans who hold very casually or very intensely to Christian nationalist ideas. You know, it's pushing 50% of the American population. So we're out making a very clear call because there are people running for office at the state level in Pennsylvania for governor. Uh, people running for office in, in 
that are sitting representatives in, in Congress and uh, people who are talking about running for president again and Donald Trump, who are statedly working in, again in the Christian nationalist spaces. And um, after the insurrection on January 6th, we all realized how deadly this can be, not only to individuals' lives, but how dangerous and deadly it can be to our democracy. So there's a lot going on and a lot of work that we're all having to do to be sure that we make a clear call to say that Christian nationalism is something that cannot be abided any longer without a robust faith response, as well as people who don't hold the faith uh, reacting to the, the detriment of Christianity, yeah. Christian nationalism in the country. I think it's really important that that people like you who are really rooted in the especially the evangelical community both of us are white men and we know that there's a, a racial component to the you know to the Christian nationalist movement that it goes back to I I would I would say at least the 1920s um with the Ku Klux Klan movement uh and and we're you know we just have to be aware that we have a special responsibility not to not to call this about other people but you know that the reason I like I the reason I I don't off I I I try not to say oh it's it's not a christian thing is because it, yeah. I don't want to be absolved too much I want to recognize that there's things that you know that are within our tradition that we have to we need to call out and uh, you know I'm exercise as a de almost as this demon of a spirit of of lack of hospitality, lack of generosity, lack of love. And so I really appreciate what you're doing. So you're going to roll into Columbus. Tell us what happens when you roll into Columbus. Like, what's the first thing that happens? Who have you reached out to? Who's Who do you expect to see there? And what kind of message are you hoping to, to impart there? Yeah, we're on the road. We're doing two kinds of events. Today, we're going to run a confronting Christian nationalism training event at a church. Uh, this particular church is uh, associated with a Methodist uh, denomination, but it's also going to be a lot of evangelical leaders. We run these trainings all over the country. They're two-hour trainings that really walk people through an understanding of Christian nationalism, how they can recognize it when they see it, and then how they can endeavor into a deeper sense of empathy and engagement with the people in their lives and the people around them. Because it does, it's not enough just for you know, organizations and leaders to talk about this. People need to have the capacity to speak about these issues in their own, in their own relationships. And people often ask us, you know, Hey, are you just out there preaching to the choir? And anybody who's done church work knows without a good choir, you don't have much of a church, right? And the, the, what we can do is have uh, you know, a choir of millions that are prepared to sing a song that is an alternative to Christian nationalism will be much better than any one statement. But we do all kinds of work. We're hanging billboards up in Pennsylvania that call this stuff out. We're traveling in our bus. We're working in the media. We're training people on the ground to be able to go and engage. So that's what we'll do today. Tomorrow we'll be engaged in Pennsylvania in a rally event. We're going to be standing with Josh Sapiro, who's running for the governor uh, of Pennsylvania. And he's running against someone named Doug Mastriano, who is statedly, participated in the activities that led to the insurrection. He's someone who's called for Christian nationalist ideas to fund and fuel his campaign as running for governor. So we're doing both of these public outdoor rally events with, you know, on the side of our bus drawing attention. And we're also working uh, in churches and doing long form training with people. And we've developed online training and downloadable curriculums and all kinds of resources that people can utilize. So we're trying to come at this with, you know, a, a range of um, styles of communication as well as um, 
different places where people can connect to us. And we put all this stuff online too, so people can watch all the trainings right. online. They can right. watch them live or share them after after the fact. I think it's incredible, and I I know I know many. I have many friends whose whose own families have been kind of really have have adopted this ideology and i think the idea of not preaching to the choir the choir the anybody who's as you say anybody who's worked in a church knows that the choir can be some of the source of the most harsh criticism because they have to listen to you every sunday so the idea that they're all just agreeing with you and saying amen the whole time well no not exactly uh uh or that i've never been with a choir like that but uh so i think that it's great what you're doing my guest is Doug Paget, Executive Director of Vote Common Good. It's great that um, you can be rooted in your own faith tradition, but recognize that you're actually participating in a democracy with people of many different faith traditions and no faith traditions, all of whom deserve respect and and dignity and an equal place at the table. And so you showing up with the Jewish candidate in Pennsylvania is saying, like, our values are not do not dictate that we need a Christian there. It needs, we need, we have values that we need represented and a secular person could represent those values or you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but that's how I'm seeing you. Exactly right. Yeah, that is exactly right. In fact, we we make a a strong point that we're not out trying to elect Christian candidates. We're out trying to elect candidates who care about the common good. I have the privilege of my congressional representative is Ilan Omar of, Somali Muslim woman. Now, we, I don't support Ilan Omar because we share a common faith. I support her because we have a shared commitment to the common good. And when she's representing me, I don't want her utilizing only her text of religious tradition for making laws any more than I want my senator, Tina Smith, to be using Matthew 25. I want both of them to be motivated by whatever motivates them, but then to use the common law agreements of developing a secular society for all of us to benefit in and of the freedom of expression of our faith. This is the important thing. We're, we want faith voters to be motivated by their faith to vote for the common good, but we're not asking for candidates to be the representatives of our religion in their public office. That's the thing we're struggling, we've struggled with as a nation for a long time. How do we make a balance between representing all when your representative comes from a particular place in our society, a particular tradition, a particular cultural uh, understanding. But that's what we do. We work to having a society that is always beneficial for all, open to all, and never extremists. Now, I would say that my Christian tradition also calls me to that, but our representatives need to dig into something deeper than just their religious tradition for their work as lawmakers. And this isn't, this isn't easy. We've struggled, you know, look, we started a country out of a bunch of colonies and you know, amendment number one was let's throw religion and, you know, let's talk about what we're going to do about religion with the establishment clause that we will not establish a religion. Not everyone agreed with that um, amendment 246 years ago, but it is the law of the land. And frankly, not everyone agrees with it today. There are people running for office at the state level, at the county level, at the national level who don't agree with the notion of not establishing a religion. Which they is, want religion which to- is a terrible... The reason religion has thrived in this country is because they made the decision not to have a state religion. And we have to recognize they could have made it a Christian nation had they decided to make it a Christian nation, but they didn't. 
They did not. We are not that. And that's the reason Christianity has been so vibrant in this country and different forms of Christianity have been so vibrant in this country and and other forms of religiosity as well as secular have been able to thrive because we don't have a state religion. And the idea that we have to somehow reinstate a Christian nation or create a myth that there was a Christian nation at the founding is so antithetical to what actually makes America strong and American religious yeah. traditions strong. So so to be to say that there's a separation of church and state at our founding is not to be anti-religious, it's to recognize the power of right. that to in in helping religions thrive. And so I I just think that's so important. And um and I just love I love every way you're talking about this. I think it's exactly in line with what I feel at the Interfaith Alliance and and my own beliefs as a, as a individual as a Christian as a and as a as a part of America. And I, as I like to say I am anti-Christian nationalism because I'm a Christian and because I'm a patriot. Like right. those two things to make me anti-Christian nationalism That's because I exactly fear for right. my country and I fear for my faith. So tell me um, what happens uh, the day after. I mean, I know that there's, you know, yeah. you guys are doing all this great work. This bus looks super cool. And like, I, you know, I want to take a ride sometime. But w- what what are you all doing to prepare for what happens after? Because it's whatever happens, the work yeah. will continue. Yeah, we know that uh, elections continue to come. And more importantly, the American imagination around what our civic engagement means has to continue to be built. So we work in two areas. One of them is a project that we're calling Courageous Conversations, how to help people have conversations with those that they love most about issues of politics and religion that seem to divide. And a lot of times people want to only or do their practice or only work in crossing religious or political divides with strangers, which is important and good practice. But most people feel heartbroken that they can't speak to their family members or their friends that they've cared for for so many years and have become so divided. So we'll be doing that work in 2023 and 2024. We also know that the issue of immigration is incredibly tied into all of these issues. The current Republican build the wall narrative and reduce the number of migrants who can come into our country and refugees or putting them on airplanes and sending them to other uh, states is all driven by these Christian nationalist notions of who really belongs in America. So last year we began to work on this project in earnest when we did a bike ride from San Diego, California to St. Augustine, Florida, across the country along the U.S.-Mexico border. And we had lots of riders. I had the privilege of riding every mile of that. And we moved in and out of uh, the border um, cities along the Mexico-U.S. border and met refugees and people working, trying to tell the truth about what's going on on our border. So we know that our borderlands and our immigration conversation, as well as how we cross these walls that have been built between loved ones and family members in this country is the work that we're going to be doing. But then we also train candidates. We work with Democratic candidates on helping them connect with faith voters. You know, in one way, we can we can say that the you know the Republicans are just over exercising their religious muscles, and they are. They tend to baptize everything they do in some sort of religious narrative. But our Democrats don't talk enough about the motivations that faith voters might have for voting for them, and we want to help um, Democratic candidates do a better job of connecting with with the voters who they really could have a deep connection with um, in ways that are without pandering to them at all, just more honest ways. So 
we do that kind of work yeah. as well. And then a lot of on the ground organizing because, you know, even though people don't want to hear it, you know, in 24 months, we have a presidential election as well as every house Absolutely. seat is up and, uh, I don't know, 36 yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Senate seats or something, which isn't very long when you're doing this kind of work, you know, it's, uh, it's not at all long. It's not at organized. all long. I will say I'm beginning to think that you just like traveling. And so like you have a bus thing and a bike riding a bike thing, thing and pretty soon it's going to be like horseback riding through Arizona. I mean, I don't know what's next yeah. for you, Doug, but I, I do think it will involve some sort of travel. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. In 2020, we did a, uh, during COVID when we wanted to get out in, in late August and had to find a way to do it. We did a walk from Charlottesville, Virginia to, to Washington, DC, 156 miles. And uh, hundreds of people walked with us along that journey. And uh, we're talking about walking. There, there's something the about the, the sojourn, the, the pilgrimage, the voyage. The, the... Well, it is. In fact, that's exactly what we think we're up to. Because in the States, we, we have this habit of talking about our stories only with a hero, a villain, and a victim narrative. Right? And we always see ourselves as our habit in America to either be the hero or the victim rarely the villain. And once you get into a hero, villain, victim narrative, you can never get out of it. You always need a deeper villain. You always need uh, more heroes. And it just, it's eating us alive. And the alternative to that is the collective human sojourn story. In other words, that we're walking with each other, that our humanity, we're all trying to walk each other home at night. You know, we're trying to get from here to there together as human beings. That's the alternative to the hero, victim, villain narratives. So really, sometimes when we're out doing this performance art piece of traveling the country or walking or biking, we're trying to say, look, these divides are the places that we travel. We have the privilege of living in a country that actually has roads. Just imagine, you can ride a bicycle from San Diego, California to St. Augustine, Florida, along the U.S.-Mexico border because we've paved the way all the way. It's an incredible reality, and we need to walk these paths together. We need to connect these sides that seem so different. We need to sojourn together. So that's actually, I'm glad you brought yeah, that no, up. Yeah, no, I love we that. We want people I, I, to I notice get it. The, the, the sojourn narrative of all this. Yeah, I, I, I think the sojourn narrative is, is all, also important because the reality is, is that we're not going to get there. We are not going to get there. The, the kingdom is always becoming like we're not going to get there, but in walking together, we're going to create at least a way that we can we can move together forward together. And yeah. the idea of the perfect country, the idea of the perfect land, I, you know, we, we, we always have to keep striving for it. But it's not about necessarily arriving and then we're going to be done yeah. and then we're going to be a um, it's really about going together and trying to get every step better and better and more together yeah. and learning more so i just really appreciate the idea of, of that uh, you know if we want to take it back to our christian roots the idea of the way and it's 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 about walking the way you know so i i really appreciate that i appreciate you and your crew so much what you're doing I'm looking forward to finding ways to collaborate with, with you, with Interfaith Alliance, and with myself personally. I just think it's such exciting work. So stay tuned, everybody. And please, if people want to get involved, they, would it be votecommongood.org? Or what, what's the best way yeah, for people yeah. to find out what you're doing? Yeah, that's right. They can go to our website, votecommongood.com or .org. Either of those will bring you to the same place. And uh, yeah, lots of ways to connect there.
And think about it. You can learn how to talk to your neighbor better, your family better, learn about Christian nationalism, learning about all sorts of different opportunities to participate. And the more we can figure out ways to participate, the less lonely we feel, the less um, the less powerless we feel, the more we feel like we're owning and participating in our in our democracy and with our neighbors and loved ones. So Doug Paget is the executive director of Vote Common Good, touring the country with a big orange bus bringing the message to vote common good and stand against Christian nationalism. Safe travels, Doug. Thank you for being with us. Really, really an honor. Thank you so much. Whether it's Christian nationalism, QAnon conspiracies, or other assaults on our democracy, the obstacles to voting are multiplying. With midterm elections on Tuesday, November 8th, and early voting already underway across the nation, few places are facing as many challenges as Florida, which is why I'm thrilled to have the state's League of Women Voters president, Cecile Schoon, with us on State of Belief Radio. President Schoon, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be one of your guests. Uh, we're delighted. Uh, so, Let's start with a little background on the League of Women Voters. For those who are not acquainted with it, they need to be acquainted with it because it's an extremely important organization. Can you talk a little bit about the League of Women Voters and the mission of the organization? Absolutely. Well, I always like to share that one of the origin stories and something that really touches my heart even to tell it, and that um, the original beginning was primarily Quaker women who were outraged at, in slavery. And they were part of the Underground Railroad and would see people with the stripes on their backs, horrible stories. They were incensed because they believed that no man should intercede between man and God and that slavers were acting like God, which just, mm. and they wanted to get in the street and talk. And some of their husbands said, oh, what are you doing? There's a kitchen. And so when they actually were trying to help others, they learned without a vote, you don't count. And so they really realized we want to work on this other problem, but the, the, the floodlights was shown on themselves as women having to go through men, they realized how important it was for everybody to have the right to vote and to be educated about voting. And that's coming forward. Once we got the right to vote, we're still basically in those two camps. We look around and we want everyone to vote, but our hearts and our efforts are very focused on marginalized groups because we started that way. Mm. And so we're like, who's locked out? Wow. <laughs> and we kind of try to make sure that they get pathways to voting. And then we realize, well, this group hasn't been voting, so let's provide education on how to do it and what are the topics. And therein, that is the league. And we're nonpartisan. Isn't it amazing? I just think that that's an incredible origin story. It recognizes that, you know, you no, everybody should have a right to speak into the issues that feel powerful to them, that affect them personally, or that affect the communities around them personally, and they feel like they want to participate in that. And it's like Absolutely. foundational to my, democracy. It's just, it's so important. I I'll just share with you that my grandmother was so involved in the League of Women Voters in Wisconsin and like spent 
so much of her um, extra time, you know, she was a, she was a professor. Many women in the league have many, have, have big jobs like yourself. You're a lawyer. You have lots of things that you, you, you can be doing, but she dedicated that to shoring up democracy, figuring out the best way that our laws and our elective officials can serve the people. And I just love that. That is a wonderful, wonderful story from a grandson. I joined the league because I was reading all this stuff that my grandmother was doing. And it was funny. My one of the stories, and I I promised we're gonna get back to Florida, but one of the stories was my my grandfather said, I want to be a member of the league. I understand that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna impose myself on on this organization, but I believe in what you're doing, and I'm going to be a paying member. And, and he, he always claimed he was the first male member of the league in Wisconsin. Well, I don't know. 1972, we did accept men, and my husband is a member also. <laughs> All right, I love it. Okay, so so let's talk about the league's work in Florida in particular. Uh, what yeah. do you you know? You talked about like looking around, seeing what are the obstacles to voting, and you know, I just want to start with the you know. The terrible thing that I just made me sick to my stomach, seeing these videos of these people who had yeah. done their time, who had been told that they could vote, and then do a sting operation, humiliating, just the worst. And it was, uh, I, I don't know, I, 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 I'm going to calm down. I would love to hear <laughs> your thoughts about what, what you saw and what the, how that oh, affected you. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it tight. All right. First of all, those were absolutely excruciating, painful videos to watch. And you could see even the police felt ill. Like, I don't know why we're doing that. You could tell on their voice, you know, that sounds like it could be a defense. They were sympathetic. So that, that was right there in the video. But I want everyone to understand all of these issues were litigated when the league and many other plaintiffs, we went to court and we, we litigated against the changes to have to pay all the fines and fees before someone could vote. And the judge ruled that that was a poll tax. Now, what we heard in that testimony was the government knows it's not well set up for this system. All of the experts said, we don't have enough resources to find out if people can vote. The, the underlying documents were not well integrated. In other words, it's a stack of cards. They said themselves, we cannot do this. We need a whole lot of money and resources to revamp. Records are lost, burned, you know, all of these things they said. They were not kept in a consistent way. And you were trying to base a fundamental right onto something that's not integrated. They said that, everybody admitted it. So to have now a system where they're up, we looked in the records and you haven't paid, when they themselves in the litigation, this is not me summarizing, it's right there to be read. They said, uh, the Maria Matthews, the attorney for the Division of Elections said, she had 13 lawyers, I don't have enough to do the work. They said it took months to research back and forth because the 67 court systems don't speak to each other. Ugh. And I mean, what, what I'm hearing you say don't. is just like, you know, it's it, it's complicated, it's but it's, when it comes down to it, it's not complicated. There's the, the, the system is starved. It's being starved so it can't serve the people it needs to serve in order to help them. And it was never intended for this. Yeah. And so to, to, to put the uh, a new felony on a system that is broken was never intended for this is outrageous. It's outrageous. And so that adds even more. And the fact that the government itself, those that run the shop, they're still there. 
they admitted they didn't have the resources. Yeah. And to, to act now like a person, an average person with a felony, might seventh grade education is the average that we found. And the lawyers are saying they can't figure it out? Yeah. It's yeah. outrage. It's, and the government should be responsible yeah. for telling someone whether you can vote. It's not good enough that the government says, oh, we can't figure it out. Oh, by the way, you made a mistake and we're going to put you in jail. It's, it's, that it, doesn't it, it, make but, but any then, sense. But, but the, the effect is chilling. Yes. The effect is, is I mean, I think it was an extremely eff effective tactic, frankly. If you look at DeSantis holding a press conference right around that same time, it was an right. effective tactic. And I just think it's, it's, it's reprehensible. I appreciate so much the league calling it out. Um, and, Thank you. you know, I, 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 I want to get back to Florida, but it makes me think of like what's happening in Arizona with all the voter intimidation. And I don't know if you saw, but the League of Women Voters, again, <laughs> rah, rah, League of Women Voters uh, litigated to say this is intimidation. Right. And they won. Exactly. They won. It was announced yesterday. And so people can't show up to poll boxes with machine guns. Uh, wow. And, you know, and and uh, and so it's, again, another example. League of Women Voters, y'all, take a look, participate, because what I see the league doing is participating democracy and encouraging other people to participate in democracy exactly Absolutely. in a moment where we have a, a, a concerted effort on some people to actually dis, dis, disengage people from the and democracy. Let me, let me bring a foil to that, so a contrasting foil. The day before the press conference, I think it was August 20th with the governor announcing the, the 20 arrests, right? The day before, there was a group of people who had voted twice in the villages, which is very, in Florida, very Republican, upper class, basically mostly white folk, they were offered plea deals the day before. It's now, unbelievable. There should be equal justice. Uh, oh. Where was where was the SWAT team? Where were the handcuffs? Yeah, thank where you. Where was all of that with those people? Oh my God! Oh, now we're now we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna both have to take like a meditation lesson <laughs> right after this because I'm getting so riled up. But I what exactly. I do appreciate is is. Um, let let me just stop for a second and ask you a little bit about your background. I don't think most people may not know you, but I can already tell like you, you are a woman of power and, and have a really strong legal background. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the League of Women Voters and some of your plans for the League of Women Voters going forward. Well, I've been very involved with voting uh, my whole life. I started out my legal career. I was a active duty officer. I was an assistant staff judge advocate, they call them JAGs, at an Air Force base. And I registered voters on the base just as a volunteer. That's something I totally believe in. After getting out of active duty service, I stayed in the reserves and retired as a major in 2005. But my private practice is civil rights. And I do employment discrimination of the six, the seven protected classes. So age, nationality, gender, race, yep. religion, all of these things, disability. And so it's very key to my concept that people should be treated fairly, regardless of their packaging. If they can do the job, let them at it. Right. And so when I got very involved with the league, I've been a long-term member, but I got more involved when I saw that my league in the state of Florida was willing to litigate on issues that were unfair. They, they helped to pass the Fair Districts Amendments. And when the legislators flouted that, they went to court. 
they um, helped to pass Amendment 4. When the legislators got involved that mucked that up, they went to court. And I'm like, I'm doing my cases one by one. Here's an organization that's touching hundreds of thousands of people. Amazing. I think I can spend some volunteer time in that organization. So there's the tie-in with it's, my personal yeah. values and what the league is doing. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. One thing that I I, I really enjoyed. I had a conversation with um with with the, one of the one of the local branches because people don't realize there's the state one. There's a national level. Then there's a state level, yeah. and then all these counties have their own level. And I was talking to one county in Southwest Florida. And and there were 30, 30 people on the call, all of whom oh, were wow. dedicating their time to making their county better. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is this is what democracy is. This is it what is. a civic it organization is. that holds democracy Thank together. You. And in this moment, the people I'm talking to you out there, we're in a moment where democracy is at peril. It is. It is. And and it's going to be organizations like the League of Women Voters that's going to hold us together, that's going to give a framework when there are people trying to minimize uh, or 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 actively um disintegrate or destroy the our 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 values and our our organizations and our institutions that support democracy. League of Women Voters is very Thank very you important. So much. We one are of, committed to that. One of, one of the things that that we talked about and that of course is important to me as someone who's a faith leader myself and a religious, you know, a person of faith whatever, but also the the asset of different religious communities in communities. So so the asset of congregations, whether that's a mosque or it's a uh, synagogue or a church or a gurdwara or a temple or, uh, you know, some of the secular humanist groups that have begun to organize. And, and, and I think that there's a great alliance. We're, we're called the Interfaith Alliance and we bring people together to work for the common good. And I was mm-hmm. talking about um, to this group about the ways that the League and the Interfaith Alliance, I could imagine us partnering because I think I think I think what you're doing is so important and 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 they they were so excited about that and and um so I I I look forward to to more conversations about that but I think we have a history we have a history of working with synagogues yeah of course because it's where the people are and so that's what we're and 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 working together to figure out a way that democracy will work for everybody and that everybody will have a voice and uh so, so tell me a little bit about the other priorities. I know I, I kind of went all in on the election, and this, this is that we're, we're talking to a lot of people about the election. But, you know, the election will come and it will go. And then the, the issues of democracy, which are larger than elections, will remain. And, uh, but I, and I know that um, the League of Women Voters is just very, very involved in that at the yeah. national but also local level. What, are you, what, are you, what is on the agenda for for the next uh, for the next several months or or year. Well, again, we are going to be doing some town halls. We've selected in the community, and it'll be a hybrid in person. And we'll try to do them in educational institutions, high schools, uh, community colleges, places where generally community feels welcome. And we want to uh, really present both sides of whatever issue. So the main topics that we've selected first are um, education, because there are passions on both sides, you know, of how to do education. 
and we want to have authentic civil conversations so people can judge for themselves and we'll start that and we're looking to start in january we're going to then follow it up with uh town halls on women's issues again we're returning to our base the era why hasn't it been passed a woman's right to choose um women's uh the status of women you know mm. how that impacts their civic involvement so that'll be another series. Can I say just have- a word about that? Which I, I sure. I'm doing a I'm doing a book about my br- grandmother, who's who, she was oh. the she was the daughter of Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court Justice. Oh wow! Elizabeth Brandeis was her name, and what was interesting, I saw this whole all her archives about League of Women Voters, and the League was so against the ERA when it was first presented because they were worried that if the ERA would pass that special legislation that protected women from exploitation and labor would be erased. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's, hard. that's really hard to even comprehend. No, right no, it now. was hard to comprehend <laughs> until you realized that the, it was supported by the National Association of Jewish Women, the National Association of Negro Women, the National Association. Everybody supported it because at the time, the only protection that women had against exploitation from work, from, from uh, owners of factories and things like that, were that they got they, 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 the, the limits of women you know, limits of hours that women had to work, the limit, you know, in order to protect women. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so actually it was the progressive stance of the time. All huh. the progressive mm-hmm. came to support it. And then come the fifties and sixties, when it became a, the ERI be- was not at all about that. My grandma, fl- uh, my grandmother flipped and the, and I think the league flipped as well. Um, but the national position of the league of women voters was against wow. the ERA at the time. Isn't that interesting? I love to talk Very to you more about that. Byzantine pathway. Well, it's, to, but, it, but you know, it, what I like about what I thought it was interesting, what I finally came to understand about it was they were always looking out for the interests of the people who would be most affected by the law mm-hmm. and, and trying to figure out what, how, what effect would this have before we say, yes, 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 let's learn what effect this would actually have on the people. I think that's really interesting and it's an exercise in democracy and it was, and the league was really trying to think about it. So I, at first I was very judgy because I thought I was like, ERA, ERA. And then, but, but then I was like, oh, I see what you were doing. And and right. I talked to some some you know some scholars about that era of women's rights. You had and they, to have yeah. Um, so so tell me a little bit. Right now we are in the last week of the election. Are there are there get out the vote efforts um, that that the league is you know when you when you talk about like encouraging people to participate in democracy, what what does that mean to the league? Like when it's the week before an election. Well, for example, we're doing a lot of Zooms. I've been, myself and many league members have been asked to speak. Um, Still, there's not full public gathering in every institution. I just did uh, a Zoom last night with my sorority, and I've got one planned on Thursday night, and I've been asked to go to Pensacola. There's gonna be a movie night, and it's gonna be a movie on Emmett Till. I guess it's uh, Uh one of the previews. And then there's going to be discussion about the importance of voting. And I was asked to speak and we're targeting youth. There are events in my neighborhood, in my town uh, of GO2V events that have been going on that the league has been participating in. We provide voter guides. Sometimes I'm able to go other league members to talk about things. We're knocking doors. So things are going on across the, the state, different things according to 
the abilities of the different leagues. But I could say in North Florida, it's full on. We're working with other local organizations, our local chapters of the NAACP, our local black uh, fraternities, historically black fraternities and sororities are getting out and doing work. And they, again, they often seek, uh, you know, myself, I'm a member of one of them, the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And so my sorors are asking me and many of our, the Divine Nine, the other Greek organizations are asking for information. So we're, there's a big push and we're, the league is being asked to talk about the amendments our voter guides are flying off the shelf, and we are just want to get the education out. We, our phrase is, we empower voters and we protect democracy. And so by giving that information out, that is what we've been up to. I love that. I think that empower voters, protect democracy. And I think that, you know, I honestly think that there may we may be in one of those inflection points where the League of Women Voters people begin to see the league and recognize the absolute crucial role that the league is playing, has played, and must play in our democracy. And I just, I, I applaud it so much. Thank For you. If, if you had one word of hope or one, you know, one anecdote that made you feel like, oh, this is like, what we're oh, doing gosh, is... Oh, gosh, you're making me pick. I'm making right, you I've pick. Got, <laughs> and, and, and all those... I've all, a story. Yeah, tell I've me a story. A, a story. Tell me a story. Powerful. Good. I live in a very southern, small little town that's um, pretty red. And uh, so when, when African-Americans run for office, it's a big deal. So uh, just last year, um, there were several African-Americans running for office in a little town, Lynn Haven. And so the league and one of the local community organizations, they have youth in it. It's a youth choir. Uh, we train them to call on the phone to the to the uh, black residents and just say, hey, there's people running for office. And we printed out a flyer that they leafleted. So they texted, they called, they knocked doors. And as a result, we have a new black mayor in one of these very southern towns by 34 votes. Wow. Yeah. So the students were excited. Yeah. They made a difference. So the next generation is learning. Yeah. And it demonstrated and it's fired up the entire community. So now we have churches, as you said, working together, different churches, different youth groups, the local NAACP, the local league, the state league. Black Voters Matter has been very generous with local mini grants. So it's because we're starting to have some successes. You got to believe, first of all. Yeah. And then you have a small success. And then what's happening locally, everybody's in. And I'm seeing this kind of effort across the state in little pockets where people actually know each other, you know, and they're able to connect and work together. So there is hope. It's absolutely that's that. a perfect story. It's also a story, as you said, it's it's a story that involves young people participating and seeing, oh, if I show up, it makes a difference. And, yes. and and if I if my part of what I try to do is invite other people to show up, it makes a difference. And it's Absolutely. just incredibly it's an incredibly beautiful story. It's exactly what I can I, I think the the league and our democracy writ large is meant to do is that we can all show up, we can we can participate in our democracy and and we all have to be aware that that there are going to be obstacles to it and we have to 
we have to name them and we have to work to 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 remove those obstacles absolutely whether they're and start in, local start whether, local with start people you local know. start because local because you know that synagogue you know yes, that mosque that's you know right. these people that's and right so when we all agree that we're going to go forward in a nonpartisan way it's really community building Exactly. In addition to building our, our enfranchisement, if people want any more information about voting, they can go to vote411.org, and it's a one-stop shop. You can check your personal status, um, your status as a registered voter. You can check to see what the issues are. You can check the voter guide. The digital voter guide is there. We also have a dedicated line to any returning citizen, person with a felony conviction, who finished your your prison time and your probation, and you're still not sure, please call 407-710-5496. That's a dedicated line. Or click on can I vote at lwvfl.org. We have trained attorneys who are donating their time to look at each individual case and if need be, they can actually go to court with you. Wow. So there is no That's, reason. I'm going to ask you to say both of those numbers one more time, just so yes. that anybody who needs them doesn't have to rewind or doesn't have to call their station yes. to say, I missed it, I missed sure. it. Say it one more yes. time. Mm-hmm. There's an email, can I vote at lwvfl.org. And it's C-A-N-I vote, all one word, at L wvfl.org that is a dedicated league of league of women voters florida Florida. uh, uh, yeah that's great and then there's also a dedicated number you can leave a message 407-710-5496 and we have hundreds of lawyers who have received training that the league has written training actually that the florida bar has approved for credit for lawyers, and it's free. We're offering it free. And we're saying, dear lawyer, you got this free training that you need to do to maintain your license, you know, that you have to have 35 credits anyway. So so can you help, can some of you help with with the problems of the citizens? And we're getting a great response. So nobody has to guess, nobody guess. You can get an answer. This is, uh, this is, uh, I'll I'll say this is, it's life-changing, life-saving work. This is the League of, uh, of Women Voters of Florida. I've been talking to President Cecile Schoon. It has been an absolute honor to have you on this show. I want to, I appreciate you and I appreciate all you're doing. Thank you. This has been a pleasure to share the information and so interesting to hear about your grandmother. Before we go, I want to offer a word to each one of you, my neighbors my friends, my family, to everyone who hears this message, we are not alone. So many of us feel threatened in this time by cruel language that demeans and demonizes, draconian laws meant to control our bodies and penalize who we are, and divisive politics meant to restrict power to the few. We look on with fear as we see democracy in a chokehold with barriers set up to restrict participation and the terror of violence weaponized against the vulnerable. Still, I say to you again, we are not alone. 
across this country, in your state, in your city, in your neighborhood, are people who are ready to come together, to come out, to show up for each other and remind us that we are not alone. You reach out today to someone in your family, to your community, someone who you feel might need a good word, a note of comfort, a hand of help, another human being to say to them, I am with you and I love you and you are not alone. Reach out and open yourself to a person from another race, background, gender, sexuality. Learn about them. Learn about their life, what they need to thrive. And then tell them what you need. And imagine a path forward together and take a first step down that path so that we can celebrate that we are not alone. Reach out to a person of a different worldview or religion and share how you see the world and how both of your traditions can power a better future for all in the here and now and proclaim that we are not alone. And in this election season, reach out to everyone you know and invite them to join you in the sacred act of voting and choosing a future for our country that represents us all, leaving nobody behind, leaving no person out, and celebrating our democracy that out of many, we can be one. Show up this election season and know that I and so many others are with you. And regardless of what the results of this election are, know that we are in this together for the long haul and that we are not alone. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We've covered a lot of ground today, and it can be challenging to talk about current threats to our democracy and religious freedom while maintaining hope and resilience. But talking to these people doing important work on the ground really helps. And these are the stories we need to keep on hearing, and that's a key reason why State of Belief is on the air. I hope you'll consider helping us to amplify the voices doing this crucial work by making a financial contribution to keep this program going strong. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and thanks for joining. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.